Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am the older sister, Autumn, and I had a little bit of trouble coming up with a personal fact about myself today, so I'm going to go super simple and just say my absolute favorite food is potatoes. And I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and my brain was also stuck on the most simple thing about me, so my favorite animal is the fox. And our topic today is about relationships and matching baggage, which has absolutely nothing to do with potatoes or foxes, but apparently all Autumn and I could think about when it came to random facts about ourselves are some of our favorite things. So potatoes and foxes. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. we, we, we thought about how to try and segue from those facts into relationships and matching baggage. And, and really, we've got we've got nothing. So we're just going to jump right in today uh, with our topic, the importance of matching baggage in relationships. Now, you will know if you are an avid listener, which I'm sure you are, that this is actually part two of our segments looking at relationships. Part one was a bonus episode that we released on Valentine's Day itself that looked at the myths behind relationships and how those can be damaging. But today we really want to focus on compatibility, I guess you could say, in relationships. And before we get into all that, um, because I love the science and I love the definitions, Let's just take a real brief look at, I guess, the neurobiology and the science behind love and attraction. And so this is going to be really quick and down and dirty. And I am actually going to have a blog posted on our website that is going to give a much more deep dive into this if you're interested. But for today, here's the general overview of the science behind love and attraction. Okay, so first off, the, the, the idea of love is shaped by our genetics and environment. Our, our base temperament, kind of that personality you're almost born with as infants, begins defining our attachment needs, like how much we attachment we need to our mother or our father or our caregiver, and how often we need that. Now, how those attachment needs are met, especially in infancy and very, and very early childhood, that's going to define us even further. Now, these needs are going to be further developed and changed, um, though less so throughout childhood. Um, our attachment, ideas of love, they're going to begin to be informed by the love we see around us and the relationship patterns we are exposed to. Now, what all of this is doing, the genetics and the environment and your, your raising, is affecting basically how your neurochemicals respond and what they respond to. So when we start looking at the neurobiology specifically, there are actually three main components when it comes to what we think of as love. And that's lust, attraction, and attachment. Now, lust is primarily driven by sex hormones. You're talking testosterone and estrogen, and those are in both parties. So even in women, testosterone, that's your libido driver. And lust and the testosterone and, and estrogen, they're genetically primed to encourage us to procreate. And so that's why you get this rush of being horny. And then once you satisfy it, it's done because that's exactly what genetically you were supposed to do with those hormones. Now, the attraction part, though, is driven more by reward hormones such as dopamine. And these are the things that make us feel good. Now, often when we're talking about sexual attraction, this dopamine is mixed up with norepinephrine. So a lot of you will know norepinephrine is part of our fight and flight response. But in this case, because it combines with that feel-good dopamine, it gives us that lover's high. It makes us giddy and excitable. And 
these interplay of hormones, they can even go so far as to affect our eating and our sleeping. So, you know, when you get that first love and you have butterflies in your stomach and you just can't sleep because you're thinking about them, this is all because of the neurochemicals and how they're reacting in your head. Now, the last neurobiological piece of love, as we want to look at it, is attachment. Now, attachment can both be romantic or platonic. Um, but when we talk about attachment, we're usually looking at two basic neurochemicals here, and I may be pronouncing these wrong. Um, I've only ever read them, but you're looking at oxytocin and vasopressin. And to give you an idea of what these neurochemicals do, oxytocin has been nicknamed the cuddle hormone. Oxytocin is what's released to help us bond to others. Um, we have it in our system and it makes us feel connected with other people. So this is actually what gets released when you hug somebody or when you cuddle somebody, or it's what's released after sex to make you feel connected to uh, that person. Now, the lust portion that's driven by the estrogen and the testosterone, obviously that's going to fluctuate a lot because that's really dependent on estrogen and testosterone we have at any given point. And as we all know, that is definitely going to fluctuate from day to day, moment to moment. Now, the attraction piece of this is going to flare up initially huge, but then it's going to level out eventually because our typical balances are going to want to reassert themselves. Now, that attraction may flare up again and again here and there, but it's probably never going to be as huge as that first love piece. And then the attachment portion of love is kind of the underlying force that ties it all together. And so this is what's most likely to keep us in that long-term relationship. And so that's just kind of a general overview of the neurobiology behind love or the science behind love. But I mean, when we start talking love, it, it is bigger than neurobiology and it is bigger than science. So there's some of the other things out there that affect love and what makes us fall in love. So why don't you speak to some of those things, Ivy, some of those other factors that make us fall in love? So I think what people primarily are looking at when they get past just that very initial attraction, one of the first things you're going to be looking at is if you have common interests or common value systems, or you have commonality in your backgrounds, those, those common backgrounds that can have a huge influence on the sorts of people that you were attracted to, because that's going to contribute to the other things like common value systems. Maybe you have a huge family because your family is religious. And so you may be looking for a partner who has a religious inclination that matches with the way that you were brought up, even if it's not the same religion as you. Maybe it's still important to you that your partner is, for instance, Christian, or that they adhere to some, some sort of belief system that matches yours. That can also be political. And people tend to gravitate towards others who hold very similar political and societal views. It's, if I could just like jump yeah, into that, ahead. I, I, I would say that that's in part like a couple things is one, um, that's who you're exposed to. You know, if, you, if you're from a really strong Catholic family and you're really involved in the Catholic community, the people you're going to meet are primarily going to be a lot of Catholic people. So that's kind of where your pool of attraction is. And then also I would say that in our society, we get a lot of us versus them mentality, whether it's, you know, Americans versus foreigners or blacks versus white or fundamentalists versus whatever. There's a lot of us versus them. And whenever you see us versus them, there's often almost this dehumanization of the other person. So if you are extremist right wing or extremist left wing, you may not be attracted to somebody of the opposite because you don't even fully see them as human because they are so different than you. So I just wanted to chime in with that on the common interest part. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely a factor and that ties into the cultural aspects as well. I mean, culture for you is whatever it is that you are exposed to. So that could, you know, the, the culture that you are exposed to combines a, a number of different things. That's political leanings, that's ethnic background, that's what part of the world you come from. It's a variety of different things. So yeah, that is an important note to make. And then, you know, at, at just basic level, a very superficial level, common interests can play a big factor in that. I mean, it's unlikely that you are gonna find somebody that shares all of the same interests as you and they're completely identical, but you, are more likely to be attracted to somebody long-term and be able to be attached to somebody long-term if you at least share some common interests. Like for instance, in, in my relationship, one of the things that Calvin and I share in common is we love being outdoors. We don't really spend a lot of time inside. We're not tech people. We don't spend a lot of time on the computer. We don't really play video games. We don't do any of that stuff. Anytime that we can be outdoors, we are outdoors. Just basic common interests. But then there's also the idea that opposites attract and there is something to that. Yeah, definitely. There's the whole, and I'm dating myself here, the Paul Abdul song, Opposites Attract. I always think of that song with the weird cat animation video. Um, but That's kind of beside the point. With the opposites attract, I think part of that also is just seeing in somebody else what we don't have in ourselves or when you do have the us versus them mentality and you've been raised with that idea of you know well this is us and you don't agree with that ideology anything outside of that ideology can be attractive or especially if you've been raised within those cultural constraints that you're supposed to marry someone of your religion or you're supposed to marry someone of your same ethnic background you also start to get that appeal of the forbidden and that's where you get that romeo and juliet you know mom and dad say well you definitely can't date that person and as soon as they say that their attraction just goes out the window because all those teenage pushes to you know define yourself and be your own person makes you really attracted to them and a lot of times when you look at it superficially though the opposites attract is often it is a very superficial thing and it is a very initial thing and they do fizzle out a lot when you're lonely looking at somebody because well mom said I couldn't date a Jewish person and they're Jewish and so now I'm super excited about them that that doesn't always form into something else because again those common interests and that background and what you've been set up in your childhood is going to play over that now the opposites of course can be important and we'll talk about that later in the show but yeah i mean when we're talking about falling in love you've got your neurobiology background you've also got the environment and the culture you're raised in and whether that be common or that opposite you've got a lot of factors that are really pushing you towards you know what love even is how you experience love and what your body even is able to produce to make you feel love if that makes sense one note on the opposites attract and one of the ways that I, I do see it working in relationships long term is when you have two people that have enough commonalities that they have that sustainability, but the, the areas in which they are opposite, they mesh well because of maybe the lifestyle that you're trying to lead. I don't personally have a ton of super practical skills. I wish I did, but I do not. But my boyfriend has every practical skill under the sun. He can fix cars, he can do electrical work, he can do plumbing, he can do all of those things. So our relationship and, and our lifestyle, how we live balances out really well because there are certain things that I do very well and there are certain things that he does very well. And so it makes our life a lot easier. That's a way in which opposites attracting 
can actually be because you are looking for a partner who will improve the state of your life and whose life you can improve the state of because your skill sets balance each other out. That's very accurate. All of that is kind of, you know, the normative base layer of what makes us fall in love, what defines love for us. So then what happens when there is family dysfunction, when there's childhood trauma, when we're talking non-normative genetics, non-normative families, non-normative environments, what happens then? And what kind of things impact you and impact your perception of love there? And I really want to start out with the really, really base layer of attachment again. You know, we talked a little bit at the beginning on the science about how attachment really helps define love. And honestly, attachment love, touch, that sort of thing, people do not understand how vitally important it is. I mean, they've shown studies and they've shown all of these different historical examples. If you take an infant and you do not touch it and you do not love it and you do not give to it that love, it will die. You can meet its basic needs. You can ensure that it has food. You can ensure that it has the appropriate temperature. But if you don't give it that physical affection and some sort of attachment, that child is going to be marred. You know, if it, if it does survive, it's going to have a very significant impact in its ability to attach to other humans. And that's something that really happens in infancy. I mean, we're talking before you can even crawl, possibly. And so if you are in a traumatic environment or a dysfunctional environment, and right off the bat, right from infancy, you're not getting those attachment needs met, th this is going to pretty much fuck you up a lot later. And, and I'm not saying it can't be fixed, but that's going to be an extreme obstacle for learning to attach to others later. And then with that, I mean, even going past that, though, when you have a traumatic family, you also have the potential of seeing very traumatic relationships modeled for you. Yeah, I mean, we are definitely a perfect example of that uh, in our upbringing. The relationships that we saw modeled for us between our parents was incredibly toxic. They were a lot of times passive aggressive in the way that they dealt with conflict, which that in and of itself taught me a lot of lessons about you don't do confrontation because confrontation leads to explosive fights and there is no way to deal with conflict resolution. That's a very unhealthy thing that I learned from my parents and the relationship that, that they modeled for us. Also, both of our parents had issues with infidelity which gave me very warped ideas about what relationships actually look like and whether or not monogamy can exist, whether it's something that's even good for people, you know, and, and also I just, I saw my parents hate each other and intentionally do things to aggravate each other. So all of those things can have a really significant impact. And, and I know Autumn's definitely got her, her examples of how, you know, the relationships that we saw modeled for us affected her. Well, I, I think it was not just the relationships that was modeled for us between mom and dad, but the relationships and how love was modeled, you know, downward. We were treated more like equals. And when you have that kind of crossed, unhealthy dynamic in a family where the children are equals to the parents or the children are superior to the parents, you start getting across some of those lines of what romantic love is versus what familial love is. And that really then starts speaking into abuse. And that is very, very damaging. So on, you know, the more extreme end of the scale with trauma, if you have been abused, especially in a sexual manner, or even just 
you know, maybe it was just behavioral and there wasn't actually any touching, but you were treated as a romantic partner instead of as a child by your caregiver, that's going to really impact how you understand love and how love is supposed to be given and how love is supposed to be received, as well as the power dynamic there and how much power and say you have in love. Really quick of just power dynamics in general in those sorts of dysfunctional families. This is kind of a stereotype and sometimes it swings in the other direction as well. And sometimes power is not based on gender roles, but I know there are a lot of families for which the family is extremely patriarchal and the male, the males in the family carry all of the power and control. And that can be really damaging in a variety of ways, both to sons and daughters growing up in that environment, because you're having it modeled for you that women are meant to be completely submissive and subjective to men and that women should be targets of abuse. Like I said, it's not always, it doesn't always go in that direction. Sometimes it goes in the other direction where the female figures hold all of the power in the family, maybe because there's not a male figure around really at all, like there's no father or whatever, and there's it's a primarily matriarchal family, or maybe it's a matriarchal family because the women in that family are very domineering. But regardless of which direction that goes, that's going to cause a lot of trauma for kids growing up in that situation because you're learning very unhealthy things about power dynamics. And again, that may not necessarily be based on gender, but that is a very common thing for those power dynamics to be based on. This is really true. And I think that also speaks to one of the other ways in which trauma or family dysfunction can affect your view of love. And that's, you know, it's not always that you end up defining love based on what you see. Sometimes you end up defining love on based what you don't see. You know, when you grow up in a traumatic or a dysfunctional family, a lot of times you may have this idealized vision of what a father should be or what a mother should be. And sometimes if one of your parents is absent, you know, if you're just being raised by your mother, you're just being raised by a father, or maybe you're being raised by an aunt or a grandma, or, you know, just a non other a non-biological parent, you may get these ideas and constructs in your head of how this other person would be. And that can become almost just as important, equally important into how you define love. So maybe you're being treated in such a way by, you know, let's say a, a mother and you're thinking, you know, but if I had an ideal mom, my real mom, she would treat me like this. This is how they would show love. And you come up with these idealized characteristics in your mind about these fictional caregivers and they're not real. But because you need that so much to survive, so much to live through that experience, they become for you real. And that's what you start basing what love is on. So if, and I've seen this happen in very, very strict households, um, you know, the, the parents always laying down that law, the child looks in that and says, you know, well, if I was a parent or a good parent would, and they would never punish their kids and they give their kids whatever they want. And so you will see where very strict parents have children that then have children that are very treated very passively. So the grandparents were very strict, but now the parent is extremely passive, refuses to lay down any rules or regulations because what they saw was not what they wanted. That wasn't what they understood love to be. It wasn't the love that they needed. And so then they try to create these ideals of what love actually would be. And on the note of absentee parents, th that can mean more than one thing. It may not be that your parent is physically absent or physically absent all the time. It may not be a, a situation where you are only exclusively being raised in a single parent household or being raised by your grandparents and you never see your parents at all or you don't even know your parents. 
An absentee parent can also be a parent that is a workaholic or that has to work all the time in order to support the family. I know my mom grew up in that kind of environment where my grandfather abandoned the family and my grandma had to work a lot. And absentee parents can also be somebody who is actually physically there, but they are so checked out that they might as well not even be there. So an, an absentee parent is not necessarily somebody who is just completely absent all the time that you don't even know. And I think also tied into that absentee parent idea, and, and this goes even more towards what I would see as very normative nowadays, is ideas of d divorce and remarriage. And these can be very hard on a kid, especially if there's a lot of anger and a lot of unresolved issues between the parents when they divorce. The kids are going to see that fallout. And then you can also get that power play between, you know, stepmom and stepdad and who really loves you and who really doesn't. And so even when you see divorce, divorce in and of itself, the end of a relationship is not necessarily jarring or traumatic for a child, but how it's treated and how those new partners are introduced can very, very much impact how a child perceives love or how a child, you know, that even goes into, you know, that attachment, how a child perceives loyalty and what that should look like. You know, if you bring in the stepfather and the child still has a healthy or loving um, or even just connected relationship with the real father and you try to make the stepfather be the father and you want the kid to forget their own father it's probably going to be very confusing for the child that idea that they're just supposed to forget somebody that they love and so even on that inspect um divorce and remarriage very normative but those are going to have an impact on how you define love and how you see love demonstrated in your life as a child. Yeah, and it's it's also important to note that there are so many children that end up blaming themselves for their parents' divorce. That is such a common theme that you hear among kids from divorced families is that on some level, they feel that they are responsible for the breakdown of their parents' marriage. And it's not necessarily that the parents do anything that gives them that impression that they're the ones that caused the divorce. But a lot of kids will naturally gravitate towards that assumption. So that in and of itself is very damaging because then you feel as a child that you are a destructive force, that you came between your parents and you you ruined that or you were somehow responsible for the family breaking down. And then when you also talk about remarriage and bringing in step parents, another factor that can be very traumatic is that your entire life now changes because you are split between two households and those two households operate in very different ways, more than likely based on who it is that your parent remarried. Because each time somebody goes into a new relationship, it's going to be a different dynamic because you're dealing with two different individuals. So it becomes very complicated for a child to navigate because you are going back and forth between two houses. And then if you have a parent who maybe divorces and remarries multiple times, then that's creating this pattern of instability for that child growing up. So all of these things can really have a significant impact on a child and how they view relationships and how they view themselves in context of relationships as well. And, and I think that also speaks, I mean, you were talking about, you know, two different relationships and two different families. And that really then starts speaking to more of like, I guess, the environmental factors that are around those, um, you know, the community you live in. And sometimes you end up in two very drastic different communities. Sometimes they're very similar. But the community around you is also going to affect that. You know, if you live in a low socioeconomic status community, there's probably going to be a greater prevalence of violence and a greater prevalence of like domestics. And so the idea of having an all out row where you almost or maybe do become violent with your partner 
may be an accepted norm. And that may even be like, well, that's what passion is. And I've seen people that honestly believe passion is fighting and arguing and getting in people's faces. And if they don't have that, they don't really think they're in love. You know, but on the other end of that, you also get very reserved environments um, where, you know, emotion is never expressed. And so the idea of even hugging each other in public is very off-putting to somebody because that's not how you express love. That's something we do in private. You don't do that in public. And so the environment also starts to speak to, you know, how do you love and what does love look like? And I think also along with that is your family value system. And, and this can be something you know, very general speaking, like politics and religion, because religion very much defines love. And whether we want to admit it or not, politics very much inform the idea of gender roles and what relationships should look like. And then it can also be very specific things like how much emotion are you allowed to display? Are you allowed to acknowledge when you're upset or not upset? I mean, from the grand to the minute, your family value system is always also going to impact what love is and what love means to you. Yeah. And I also want to mention in sense of the environmental factors in the community that you are brought up in and how that can affect you. It can affect you in maybe ways that you wouldn't expect. So for, for me, since I did grow up in a very isolated area, way out in the middle of nowhere, deep in the Bible belt in the Midwest, there are certain things that are very common to see there. It's very common to see people get married extremely young to have children at a very young age, to go through multiple marriages. Those are things I saw all the time. And I mentioned in our last episode that I got certain ideas about what relationships are and what they look like based on what I was seeing around me, not just my parents, but just in general. I had it in my mind that everybody gets married by the time they're like 19, has a few kids by the time they're 25, and they've probably been married three or four times. And if they're currently married, they're probably cheating on their spouse or they hate their partner. That is what I thought relationships were. I didn't like that idea, but that's what I thought it was. I did not think that relationships had any real longevity. I just assumed that all relationships, you go into them, they absolutely will have an expiration date. And when that relationship ends, you're going to hate your partner. When I moved out of that area and I moved to where I'm at now in the on the West Coast, things operated very differently. And it was kind of a culture shock for me because I started seeing all of these people who did not get married until they were like in their late 20s, early 30s, or people who maybe they did marry when they were in college, but they've been with their same partner for 30, 40 years, and they actually still like each other. So those sorts of things had a, a very big impact on me when it came to my views on what relationships were supposed to look like. So even on a, a more you know, superficial level of environmental factors, just the community that you grew up in, that can give you a, a very specific sense of what relationships are. And then you can move to a different area and it's completely different. And that can be, that can be a culture shock that can do wonderful things for you or just maybe be really disorienting. And, and I mean, that's the reality of it is that all of these factors really do deeply affect you. And I mean, whether you have a traumatic family childhood experience or a dysfunctional family or even a normative family, all of these factors come into play. All of them. And, and I mean, Ivy and I could probably go on for another two, three hours about all the various tiny things and big things that are going to impact you. And because they impact your view of relationship, because they impact your attachment, because they impact your needs getting met, 
they're going to impact your perception of love and your perception of what a relationship should be. And so the reality is, is that by the time you are old enough to actually get into a relationship, and this may even be by the time you're 14 or 15, by the time you're actually ready to get into a relationship, regardless of what background you come from, you are going to have baggage. And this baggage isn't necessarily bad things. It's not issues. It's not, you know, anything abnormal. It's just a set of ideas and a set of beliefs about what relationships and love are. And that baggage is going to affect your ability to be in a relationship. And this is what we start meaning about why it is important in a relationship to have matching or complementary baggage. So you you need to have an understanding of what love means to you, what a relationship is to you. You know, actually right now, as well as potentially your ideals, and even on the negative, what you don't think love is and what you don't think a relationship is. And you look at all of that and you you identify those beliefs and you identify the behaviors and you identify the actions and you identify the words and everything that surrounds that concept. That is your love baggage. And so now that you have an understanding of what your love baggage is, you need to start finding somebody that has complementary or matching baggage. And I should say you need to start finding. I mean, it's your life. It's your choice. But I really feel that having that matching or complementary baggage makes life and love and relationships so much easier. Um, it's easier to grow. It's easier to express. It's it's easier to love and and be healthy. So let's talk about what does that even mean? What does it mean to have matching or complementary love baggage? If you're looking at values and beliefs that we pick up from childhood that will have an impact overall on how we view relationships, whether for the better or for worse. Let's look at, for instance, religion. Having been raised Mormon, if I had stayed in the church and was trying to live as a good Mormon woman, I would be specifically looking for a partner who was also Mormon because in that religion, the family unit is so important and it is so essential and men and women play very specific roles. And so in my mind, if I was going to be Mormon, it would not be right for me to have a partner who did not hold the priesthood, which is kind of like that power of God on earth that Mormons believe that men to be the carriers of that and the people who can you know give blessings and and do those sorts of things it's a very specific role that men have in that religion whereas women their role is to stay at home with the kids and nurture the family and to do all of those things and it's not necessarily that one is viewed as better than the other but they're viewed as very being very distinct and individual so if i was still mormon my relationship with calvin would not work because he is atheist, maybe agnostic on a good day, but overall he is atheist. He is very logic oriented, very analytical in nature. Religion doesn't make any sense to him. He doesn't believe in it. So that's one of those examples. Um, we can look at political beliefs again as well when you're, when you're looking at these things. It is possible for two people to be in a relationship if one leans more you know, left and one leans more right. It's possible it's going to be a whole lot harder if either of those people is extreme to one direction or the other because that's going to cause a lot of conflicts especially if children come into the picture because you're both people are going to want to raise their kids with their way of thinking more than likely so 
it's important to have you know matching matching values and beliefs to a point where you can at least make it work or at least be able to be non-judgmental of your partner's values and belief systems and be able to balance things out. And I think that also speaks not just to the, to the bigger overarching, what we really think of as beliefs, whether that be political or religion, but I think it also speaks more to the very personal held beliefs as well. You know, we talked about for both of us, infidelity was just how relationships are done. And I think for a lot of people out there, because I think one of the studies I read, 50% of people in relationships admit to cheating. That's people that admit. So the, the likelihood is that's even higher. And so that indicates that a lot of people out there believe that part of a relationship is infidelity. Part of it is cheating. And so you really need to talk with your partner about that. You can't just go on assuming that, oh, we both believe in monogamy and that means we're both never going to cheat. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't really believe in monogamy. Maybe you believe that cheating may be acceptable, or maybe you believe that cheating is not. But that's a very, very personal held belief. And if you don't have that similarity, that's going to be a problem. If you fall in love with someone that's polyamorous, and you yourself believe in monogamy, and you can't understand how polyamory works, and you can't participate in it, that could be potentially detrimental to a relationship. And the struggles you're going to have with that, and the difficulties you're going to have with that, are going to be huge. And it also speaks, you know, like I said, to the expression of emotion. You know, if I am a very expressive, touchy, lovey, feel, feely person with my intimate partner. And so I've also been in a relationship with somebody that was not. My very first husband, he was very stoic, very don't touch me in public. Um, it's just how he was. There wasn't anything wrong with it. But both of us ended up constantly feeling annoyed and hurt by the other. Because I imagine, because we never talked, I can't really tell you, but I imagine on his end, he was always wondering, why am I trying to embarrass him? Why was I being so clingy? Why was I being so expressive and sexual and, and just almost, you know, like a, a prostitute in front of other people? And then on my end, I'm wondering, well, why doesn't he love me? And why doesn't he want to show people that he loves me through, you know, touch and things like that? And so when you don't have those similar beliefs, it's not necessarily that it can't work, but knowing that you don't have similar beliefs is very, very vital because those are going to be huge, potentially huge issues in your relationship that are going to cause problems. And you're going to have to come together to work on them if they aren't similar. And I think that also speaks to goals. So outside of similarity and beliefs, you know, based on where we were raised and based on our identification of love, we all have our own goals in life. And if your goals are very, very different from one another, that's also going to be a lot of, it's going to cause a lot of problems and it's going to make the relationship very difficult. And, you know, a personal example with that is my last spouse. She was very traditional in many ways in that she really ached for that white picket fence and that ideal community and the 2.5 children and the dog and the lawn and that sense of belonging that comes from that. And I couldn't give two flips about that. I don't want a community. I want to be isolated and alone in the woods. And I do not want children. I don't. And so having those very different goals in life because of our backgrounds and because of the needs we have to feel love and attachment to others, not just in the relationship, but overall, it led to a lot of issues. And some they weren't, they weren't for us, we weren't able to compromise around those. 
I was not able to sacrifice enough of myself to have kids, and she was not able to sacrifice enough of herself to lose the community that she needed to feel belonging. And so, you know, aside from similarity in values or beliefs, it also goes into the similarity of where are you growing towards in life? Yeah, and that's definitely very very similar themes in my life as well at this point. Uh, one note that I do want to make about those similar beliefs and values, some people believe that when you are in a partnership with somebody, you are only with that person, that everything you do, you do together, that wherever they go, you go. And for some people that works, but it does not work for everybody. So if you are somebody who is very independent and needs some you know, time to yourself, you're not going to be able to be with somebody that needs to be with you every single second of the day. It's just not going to, it's not going to work very well. It's not going to work at all. There's going to be a lot of arguments. There's going to be a lot of disagreements. You're going to have to learn to compromise. So even on things like that, I mean, that's kind of going along the lines of what Autumn was talking about with, you know, ideas about affection in public and things like that. That's another one of those, those very fundamental things because if you are somebody who believes that when you are with somebody you spend every single second together and they are your whole world well you're going to feel as though your partner does not love you if they have you know other friends that they want to spend time with or they just need alone time or they have interests that don't match with yours so that can give you very false ideas about how your partner perceives you and that can cause some real rifts in the relationship and on the goals front i mean i am I, I really just agree with Autumn on that because it's definitely, like I was saying, a theme that is presenting in my life as well. Most of, if not all of my relationships that I have been in previously were ones that would not have been sustainable because what I actually want in life is very different from what my partners wanted. And for me, a lot of it is that I've grown in so many ways and I've experienced so many things over the last several years that really gave me a different sense of who I actually am. Because having grown up so isolated, there was part of me that was like, I want to move to a big city someday and that's going to be awesome for me and that's the life that I want. And then when I actually experienced that, I realized, no, that is not the life I want at all. And as I'm getting older, I'm going back more and more to those rural roots. And I'm realizing, no, that's actually where I want to be. I want to live in the country. I want to be surrounded by wilderness. I want to spend most of my time outside. Even just like the sorts of the kinds of work I want to do, my views on that have changed a lot. Like I'm somebody I've learned that I need to work with my hands. I cannot have an office job that kills me inside. So it's important for me to have a partner who who matches with you know my my overall goals in life, which Calvin does. And I didn't even know how important that was for me until I met him. And I realized, oh, with this person, I don't even have to compromise because he wants to move out to the country. He's also somebody that enjoys working with his hands. That you know, he he has the same ideas when it comes to the the kind of life that we want, because we also do not want children it would be impossible for me to be with any of the partners that I've been with previously because the person that I have grown into is so much more in line with where I started, where my roots actually are. That's another way in which environmental factors can be way more important than maybe you realize because when you're growing up in a certain environment, maybe you think you want the exact opposite and you form relationships with people on the basis of what the life that you think that you want. And then you find, oh shit, that didn't work. 
And then you kind of find yourself gravitating back more toward, towards where you came from. And so your goals shift in that way. And so it is important to have a partner that matches that. Like we talked about in our last episode, not every relationship is going to last. Some, some relationships will end. And that's part of the growing process of kind of figuring out who you are. But when you actually do settle down with somebody that you're wanting to be with for a lifetime, it's really important to think that through carefully, take your time and see what direction you're growing in and what direction they're growing in, because you don't want to ignore things that could be big issues later on. And having similar life goals is definitely one of the most important things because some of those things can be serious deal breakers. I could not be with somebody who wants to live in the city. I just couldn't do it. I can't even be with somebody who really loves tech because I am not a tech person. And a lot of that stuff drives me absolutely insane. I need somebody who wants to be outdoors with me working the land. That's what I that's what I want and that's what I need in a partner. And, and I think, you know, before we move on to the complimentary, just one other thing I wanted to throw out on the similar is I feel also similar experiences can sometimes be helpful as well. Um, so it's not impossible, but it's going to be difficult if you have somebody from a high trauma background that wants to be in a relationship with somebody from a normative background you're going to find a lot of challenges there because it's often very hard for somebody that comes from a fully normative, healthy, loving home to understand the kind of issues that develop when you come from trauma. And even if you don't have trauma, if you have somebody that's very mentally healthy and very stable and somebody that's extremely mentally ill and that struggles a lot with their mental illness and has a lot of mental health struggles, you're going to have a very difficult time understanding where the other person comes from. And so similar experiences and similar backgrounds, sometimes they can be detrimental, but sometimes they can be beneficial. And that is something you have to consider is that similarity because it also affects how you express things as well. And, and you know, I talked about expressing, you know, affection for one another, but what about expression just in general? If you come from, let's say, a background where people yell and scream and that's just what they do and it doesn't mean anything, and you get into a relationship with somebody that comes from an abusive, traumatic home, yelling and screaming as part of your normal communication is going to shut them down at best. At worst, make them violent in response to you because they feel threatened for their life. And so, again, it doesn't have to be that you're matchy-matchy all the time. But acknowledging where you're not similar is very, very vital because those dissimilarities, especially when you're talking about trauma and mental health, compared to a normative, stable person, are going to be vast and they are really going to have to be explored. And I also want to note that that can expand that can ex extend beyond just the people in the relationship as well. If you come from a normative family and, and you're really close to your family, especially if you have like a big family that you're really close to and your partner is somebody from a very dysfunctional and abusive family, that's it's, I'm not saying that this is a deal breaker, but I am saying that it can have effects that maybe you wouldn't expect. My boyfriend's family is relatively normative. His, his parents are lovely to me. They are always very kind to me. They're very warm. They're very inviting. They show me that they care about me. All of those things. I still feel very awkward around them because I just don't understand how families operate. I don't know. I don't know how to be 
yeah, I'm not their daughter-in-law yet and hopefully someday I will be, but I don't know how to be a daughter-in-law because I don't even know how to be a daughter. Like all of those things are very foreign concepts to me and it feels very awkward to me. And I'm glad that his family is small because if, if I had stayed Mormon and I had married a man who came from a normative Mormon family with lots of kids and they're really close knit, I would be incredibly overwhelmed trying to be part of that family. But that can have an impact as well. Like I said, it's not a deal breaker, but it's definitely something that you want to consider. If one of, if you're in a relationship and one of you comes from a normative family and one of you comes from a very dysfunctional and toxic family situation, those are going to be some difficult waters to navigate and communication, not just with your partner, but also with the, you know, with the families involved is also important, especially if those families are ever going to meet. Because for me, it doesn't matter so much that my family is really dysfunctional and, and fucked up because Autumn's really the only person in my family I talk to on a consistent basis. But if I was still on speaking terms with my father, he has very extreme political views, very conspiracy theorist. He's bitter and angry a lot of the time. I would be very nervous about Calvin's parents meeting him because he's a loose cannon in my mind. So if you do come from a dysfunctional family that you are still in contact with and you feel that you need to be in contact with them or you have to be or you want to be whatever and your partner's family is normative that's something you need to take into consideration you know what happens when those two families meet so i think that's just an important thing to note that a lot of people probably don't think about when they first fall in love with somebody it's if you're if either of you is close to your family that's also going to be a part of your relationship, especially once children enter the picture. If there's grandparents or, you know, aunts and uncles or, you know, whatever, that's an important thing to think about. Not a deal breaker, but important thing to think about and come up with a game plan for. It's, it's very, very true. And there's just so many things like that, that when you do have the dissimilarities, you need to be aware of that. And like Ivy said, come up with that game plan so that you can address it. So it's not necessarily that we're saying you have to have the exact same baggage and it has to be the exact, you know, matching thing to what the other person went through, experienced, believed, etc. It's just really important to identify when they don't match and how that's going to affect you. And I think this also goes into though is complementary baggage. Um, we talked earlier about opposites attract. So We've talked about similar, similar, matching, matching, but now let's look at when things don't match, but when that works out really great. So we talk about complementary baggage. So I have an issue and you have a different issue, but together it works out really, really wonderfully. So even like Ivy talked about earlier, this could be things such as matching skill sets. You know, if you are really, really great at the domestic stuff, but you just fall apart with having to talk to people on the phone or go out and do chores, but the other person loves those things, well, those are two issues that are going to match up really well because one of you can be the homebody and do what needs to be done, and the other person can be the front man and deal with all of the things outside of it. So another example of complementary baggage, and to me, I feel like this is the ideal complementary baggage setup, is my current boyfriend and I. So my boyfriend, for whatever reason, he is attracted to crazy women. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there. And, and we joke about it and we laugh about it. But ultimately, he feels attraction to women who are different, who have a lot of high emotion, who are 
not necessarily stable and they have extreme shifts in mood. For whatever reason, he is attracted to those types of women. Well, luckily for me, I'm crazy. I, I am the kind of person that has extreme emotion and I have extreme shifts in mood and I am all over the place and I am definitely not what you would call a stable stoic person at all. And so in this case, that actually works out really well because he gets that attraction he needs from me because I have all of these crazy aspects. But on my side of this, being as into my issues as I am and as aware of them as I am, I'm also able to protect him in a way that a lot of others wouldn't be able to. So a lot of times when men get attracted to crazy women, they often get very hurt in those relationships because they don't know how to protect themselves against that. But in this case, my baggage has led me to work on myself a lot. So even though I have these extreme shifts and these tendencies to want to act out and these tendencies to want to blame, more often than not, I'm able to pull myself back and stop myself from lashing out at him. So in this case, his need for being crazy and my crazy matches up really well. And that even goes a little bit further because I think one of the reasons he likes that in a partner is because at base, he's very neutral. He's very stoic. He doesn't get a lot of stimulation naturally out of life. And so in a way, he sort of feeds off the emotion that I give. And if you looked at that just on the base of that, that he's feeding off of my emotion, that sounds horribly but it actually isn't because what happens is because he's almost neurochemically, I would say, picking up some of that emotion from me, it feels less inside of me. I have been so much more stable with him because he is almost absorbing this excess that I just naturally give out. And so now he has some of this emotion inside of him for me because I've just naturally exuded and he feels more in touch with life and he feels more alive. And then on my end, I feel more stable and balanced because I'm not overwhelmed by how much emotion I'm, I'm constantly putting out. And so, I mean, that's a very specific complementary baggage piece, but there are tons of examples out there where you have issues that are going to complement one another, that are going to be completely drastic and completely opposite. And they're still going to work because they end up, basically your, your deficits are their strengths and their deficits are your strengths in these cases. And you end up matching, or I should say complementing in such a way that you both become stronger. You know, it can even be, you know, in my last relationship, it was a little bit ridiculous, but we even assigned different tasks. So if something came up in the relationship that was psychology based, I was the one in charge of that. But if somebody came up or something came up that was math based, well, she was in charge of that because I suck at math, but she wasn't well educated in psychology. And so it was like very, very simple, very basic things, such as even who gets to be in charge of what subject, but it really, really worked because then I wasn't worried and freaking out about whether or not I'd done the budget right. And she wasn't overwhelmingly concerned about whether or not we were addressing this issue correctly. We both took this area that we were strong at and we meshed it with where the person was weak at. And we were able to complement one another and both of us become stronger because of it. Yeah, and I've got examples from my relationship with Calvin that I think really highlight this. Another example of how it works out well in our relationship. So my boyfriend is, a, he is a combat veteran. 
I've never been in the military. I'm not pretending that I ever have been. I'm not going to pretend that I have seen the kinds of things that, that he has seen or that any combat veteran has seen. However, growing up, our father was a psychologist and he primarily worked with Vietnam veterans. He was not a ethical man in his practice and there was a lot of bleed over from his practice into the home life. There were times when some of his patients lived with us. Those lines got very blurred. I got to know a lot of those men and to see what it is to live with PTSD from combat related trauma. So even though I've never experienced that kind of trauma, some of the things that a soldier who's been in combat says or does or things that, you know, his, the way that that shapes your perception of the world, your perception of society, all of those things to other people may be shocking or even offensive. There's a lot of gallows humor with guys who have been in the military, especially ones who have seen combat. I don't even bat an eye because I grew up around that. Should I have grown up around that? No, I shouldn't have. Um, but I did. And it wasn't all bad. I learned a lot of very valuable things. It gave me a lot more respect for veterans. It gave me a lot more respect for people who have been in combat situations and what that can do to you, what that does to your view of the world and your view of humanity and, and how it you know changes your sense of humor and the, you know, the issues that it gives you with triggers and you know, being fearful of you know, loud bangs and those sorts of things people associate with PTSD, but also some of the the things that maybe people don't necessarily associate with it. But because I grew around, grew up around so many people that were combat veterans from Vietnam, it gave me an understanding that I would not have otherwise had. So even though my father exposing me to those things as a young child was not good for me and in some ways was very dangerous for me, it was beneficial because it helped me to be more understanding and more appreciative of things about about Calvin that maybe the average civilian would not be understanding of. And that's really what you're looking at is, you know, what baggage do you have? And does it match? Does it complement with the other person? Now, with that, though, you also have to consider when is this complementary and similar or matching baggage not healthy? Because Ivy and I have thrown out a lot of examples of like, oh, this is how it works and it's so great and it's so wonderful. But the reality is, is this isn't always the case. You know, we're not saying you need matching complementary baggage. It's that you need to be aware of it. Because the reality is, is sometimes you have baggage that is complementary or you have baggage that is matching with the other partner, but this is very toxic. So take, for example, two individuals that came from traumatic abusive environments. And one person is just used to being abused and they seek out abusers. And you take another person that comes from that environment and they took on the characteristics of the abuser. And in order to feel in control in a relationship, they abuse. Well, those people are going to have very complementary baggage, aren't they? You have somebody that wants to abuse and you have somebody that seeks out abuse. That's still not very healthy, though. It's very toxic, damaging relationship when there's abuse and when there's harm happening. So when you're looking at the matching and similar baggage, you need to take it a step further and say, is this healthy? Do we match up in a way that is going to increase the health of both of us? Do we match up in a way that's going to help both of us grow? Or are we matching up in a way that's potentially damaging? Um, what are some of the other negative side effects you've seen out there, Ivy, that come from the matching or the complementary baggage? 
I kind of want to continue on a little bit um, first with the some of the real physical dangers that can come from that matching baggage. So you use the example of, of an abuser and somebody who has a long history of being abused and why they might be attracted to each other. Another area where that where it can be really detrimental is if you have two people that have serious issues with addiction, whether that's, you know, addiction to substances or addiction to gambling or, or whatever it is, you have two people with very serious issues with addiction and they can feed off of each other. They understand each other. They understand what it is to live with addiction, but they may not always be the best fit for each other, the healthiest fit for each other anyway, because if you have two people that have a, we'll just say a history of heroin abuse, and maybe those two people before they got together had kind of gotten back on their feet and they were sober and they were doing well for a while and they meet this other person and then you fall into this cycle of addiction together and now you're feeding off of each other and now it's even harder for you to you know get back on your feet and stay away from those substances because now you're in a relationship with somebody who is also addicted to that another way that it can be that can be damaging maybe not so much in a physical way but Maybe it could be, um, but it's definitely damaging in emotional ways and in mental health ways is if you have a, a relationship between two people that becomes extremely codependent where one person is entirely dependent on the other person for absolutely everything where that one person is taking care of all of the household responsibilities. They're the only one who's working. They are providing for all of the needs of their partner and for all of the needs of the family. That can also be incredibly damaging as well. But if you grew up being an enabler, you're probably gonna be attracted to people who have that dependent streak, who want to be dependent on you for everything. And if you are somebody who grew up being enabled, you're probably going to seek out people who are going to take care of you because you never developed that sense of self-sufficiency on your own. And it's just, it's the path of least resistance, but that can have really damaging effects both on the people involved in the relationship, but also on the entire family unit as well. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to another uh, another downside overall of some of the complementary matching baggage sometimes is that sometimes when you especially when you come from very similar environments and both of those environments were toxic or invalidating or damaging and you get together because you are familiar with one another and it does seem attractive what you're doing is you're staying in that same rut. You you just moved out of one decaying hovel to build a new decaying hovel and you're not learning to grow and you're not letting light in and you're not cleansing anything. You're just staying in that rut. And because both of you feel like this is normal and this is okay. And this is what, you know, life is what's happening is you're now creating, you know, the same thing you experienced and nothing new and nothing good is coming from this. And so when you're looking at the baggage from relationships, you have to really look at, is this helping us out or is this damaging us? And it's not just us as in you and I, but it's also us as in the relationship, because in some ways the relationship is its own entity. And I think in some ways, in all honesty, I'm just going to throw this out here, is this is a lot, I'm, I think, easier for people that come from dysfunctional, like highly dysfunctional backgrounds than it is for people that come from normative backgrounds. Because the reality is, is no matter 
what scale you end up coming from is your background. You're going to have things that were negative and you're going to have things that were toxic and you're going to have things that were damaging. And when you come from a really, really, really dysfunctional background, it's so dysfunctional and it's so big and it's so huge. It's easier to go, oh my God, look at what happened here. That was fucked up. But when you come from a normative background, there are a lot of things going on, even in normative families that are still damaging and are still traumatic. And we don't realize that. And we think, oh, well, that's just normal. And that's just okay. But it isn't. It may be normal, but it's not healthy. And I think one of the biggest one of these that I've seen out there is invalidation. A lot of normative families are very invalidating because they support that normative idea of mental health, which is we are always okay. We are always fine. And so if you get somebody in that normative family that experiences an extreme emotion or that gets depressed, that gets invalidated. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, you just need to, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Oh, you just need to participate in soccer. Oh, well, that's not really what you want to do with your life. And that seems like, oh, they're being loving and they're being supporting, but really it can be invalidating. And it's hard to point that out because it's what so many people experience. And we normalize this kind of abuse we normalize this kind of invalidation. We normalize something that's toxic. And even though it's normal, it's still not healthy. And so it's really, really important for those of you that do come from a normative background who feel like, oh, well, I had a very healthy, supportive family to really honestly look at what your experiences are and what your baggage is around love and relationships and not say, hey, is this normal? But ask yourself, hey, is this healthy? Is this helping me grow? Is this helping me be happy? Because that's really the important thing is not are we normal, but are we healthy? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I definitely see examples of that all the time. There's so many things in society that we that we take for granted as being healthy because they've been normalized, not because they're actually healthy, but because it just happens so frequently and society has accepted that this is normal and therefore this is right and this is healthy and that can definitely be a very damaging lie. Uh, there's one other thing that I want to make mention of with kind of the downsides of having matching or complementary baggage and this is one that's been a, a theme for me at multiple points in my life especially when it comes to relationships is seeing what you want to see instead of what's there in reality. Um, one of the best examples of that for me was my last long-term, my last long-term relationship that I had before I was with Calvin was with this man that I just thought was amazing. And I thought I was never going to find anybody else like him. And I just fell head over heels in love with him. And he was he was so sweet to me and he was so genuine and, and he was so sincere and he had all these qualities that I really liked. And what I was seeing were, and he was much older than me. Uh, it was an age gap of about 25 years, I think. What I was seeing were characteristics that I would have wanted in a father. I did not see that at the time. What I also did not see at the time was that this man was pretty much exactly the same as my father. 
because even though he had all of those characteristics that I really liked and he could seem really sweet and sincere and genuine and he just seemed to love me so much, he also was never around. There would be months that would go by that I would not hear from him and I would make excuses for him. And I am not proud of this, but I will admit that that relationship was an affair. He was with somebody else. He was not married, but they'd been together for 10 years. And he kept making these excuses for why he couldn't leave her because she had all of these health problems or because it was going to hurt their, you know, his adult children that loved her and her adult child that loved him. And it was just going to be so damaging. Or he was trying to sell his business first so that he could have enough money to give her so that he wouldn't feel as guilty about leaving her. And because I so desperately wanted him to be this thing that I perceived him to be, because I wanted to believe these things about him, I painted him in this idealized light and I made all these excuses for him. And I thought, oh no, he's a good man. That's why this is taking so long because he wants to make sure that this person he's been with for 10 years is gonna be taken care of. She has all these health problems. Of course he wants to take care of her. And all these things are just taking a really long time. It was all a lie and it was all bullshit. And at the end, it, it was a wake up call for me because he just bailed. He just ditched me and he didn't tell me the relationship was over. He moved out of state, blocked my number, all of those things. And it devastated me. And in the months that followed, it became so obvious to me that I had, I had engaged in the sort of relationship with him that I had engaged in with my father, that he was pretty much damn near identical to my father in every way, but appearance. And not only had I engaged in a relationship with this man that was so similar to the relationship I engaged in with my father, it was even worse because it it mirrored the relationship my mother had with my father when he cheated on his first wife to have an affair with my mom. And I did not realize those things until after this guy just bailed out of my life and it devastated me and I was humiliated and I was angry at him and I was angry at myself and I couldn't believe I'd been so stupid and I couldn't believe that I had let myself slip in, in that you know, ethical way because I always said, well, I'm never going to cheat on a partner again after my second husband. And I didn't, but I kept making, I kept going through these, these mental gymnastics because I wasn't the one cheating, you know, he was the one cheating and it was only because she had all these health problems and all this. And I went through all these mental gymnastics and I know it was dumb. And looking back at that situation, as horrific as it was, and I feel terrible for the part that I played in that, in him being enabled to cheat on his partner and the damage that that does to a family unit, because whether he was married to her or not, they'd had a family for a decade. I feel terrible about that, but I'm also... On some level, I am incredibly thankful for that experience because that was the real wake-up call for me that I was repeating my relationship with my father, but that I was also repeating the kind of dynamic that my mother had with my father. And I am so thankful that I did not end up with this man because it would have ended up, I'm, I feel confident, it would have ended up being just like my mom's relationship with my father. And it would have broken me over time the way that my mom was broken down because there, the dark sides to him were that he did look down on women a lot. He pretended like he didn't, but he did. 
And there was this this expectation that he would work and I would have to stay at home. And there were all of these things that when I was with him, I thought, oh, well, this would be great because at the time I wanted to have kids and I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and all that stuff. And now looking back, I'm like, no, I'm really grateful that I'd never ended up with him long-term because the sorts of things about him that were dark were things that also existed in my father that slowly broke my mom over years and took away her sense of independence and her sense of self-sufficiency and isolated her and put her in such a bad space with her mental health. And maybe I would have turned to substance abuse too. And maybe I would have had kids that I would end up resenting and that would be used as pawns against me. I got lucky. I dodged a bullet because he decided just to, to ditch me like that but be careful when you are going through life and you're looking for potential partners please be careful not to just see what it is that you want to see because that image can be very very deceptive and it is so tempting to fall into that because you just want this one thing so bad I, because of my abandonment from my father and all of the abuse that I experienced because of him and through him, I just perpetuated the same cycle and I was making really dumb decisions, but I was just re reliving the same cycle of my own relationship with my father and with my mom's relationship with my father. And I didn't see it at all. And you know why I didn't see it? Because I didn't fucking want to. So many of the people in my life that I was close to tried to warn me. I got in so many fights with friends of mine and loved ones because they tried to warn me that he was bad news. And I didn't listen because I didn't want to. I saw what I wanted to see and I ignored the rest. Be careful to not just see what you want to see. And and I think that entire experience also just speaks to how almost intrinsic our feelings of love are, you know, because love and attachment, like we discussed at the beginning, are driven a lot by our neurobiologics. They are driven by our chemistry. And a lot of our attachment patterns are set up in infancy, and they're then further built on during our childhood. And so you have nearly two decades of whatever that experience is, feeling normal and feeling like the place to be. And it's so difficult as you get older to really honestly tease out what is healthy and what is not healthy and to be able to step outside of yourself enough and outside of this love narrative that your body and your genetics and your mind and your background are pushing you so hard to be a part of and that you want so desperately to believe because this is how you're getting your attachment needs met is through love after all. And it's so hard for us to step outside of that narrative and one, be even able to acknowledge and willing to acknowledge that this isn't healthy for us and this is a pattern we're repeating. And two, sometimes to even see it. And, and Ivy, like she said, she was very lucky that it ended and it didn't pursue or didn't continue because sometimes they do and you don't realize it and you get stuck in these horrible, horrible, horrible for you relationships. And uh, some of the time you don't even realize it. You know, people wonder why the abused woman stays with, with, their, with their partner or the abused man stays with their partner. There's a reason for that. And it's not always just fear. Sometimes it is love. It, as much as people don't want to hear it, it is their love narrative that they're repeating. And it is not healthy for them, but they are not yet willing or not yet able 
to see how damaging it is. And this is why it's so very important to start examining your relationship baggage. Because when you start identifying what you believe and what you think about love and what you believe and what you think about relationships, you're going to start seeing these themes. And then if you can start looking at what that relationship is in front of you and applying it there, you're going to start understanding what matching baggage do I have? What complementary baggage do I have here? And is it matching and is it complementing in a healthy way or in a toxic way? Now, we talked about some of the ways that it can be toxic, but there's also a lot of ways that it can be very, very healthy. You know, Ivy and I gave some personal examples, but especially digging in here a little bit to mental health issues and mental health struggles specifically, when you have that matching and complementary baggage, it can actually be very, very, I guess, growth inducing. It can foster a lot of growth for you. Um, I think one of the very first things when you kind of have some matching baggage and you have this complementary thing, one of the things you can do for one another is even acknowledge that the other person is actually having mental health struggles or has a mental illness or has experienced trauma. So if you're like me or Ivy and you've been through the ringer and you've got this background, maybe you get into a relationship with somebody that's normative and you can be like, hey, you know, I, I hear all these things you're telling me and I know that you say that that's normal and you know they say that that's what everybody does, but what you were actually experiencing was depression or what you actually went through was trauma. Because especially when you come from a normative environment or if you've only ever been surrounded by a traumatic environment, you're not able to see those things. And so when you come into a relationship with somebody that has a similar experience to you, that's done some of the work you've not yet been able to, that is one of the benefits that they can actually step up to you and acknowledge and be like, hey, baby, that's horrible. That was a struggle. And they can give you that acknowledgement that something was actually wrong. You don't necessarily realize that something horrible and big happened to you that had these great big effects. And so, you know, they just think, well, I just never really had any friends or I was just pretty bummed out through, you know, most of my adolescence and high school. And they start telling you all these things. But because you've done the work, you're looking at this and you're going, you know, you meet the exact DSM criteria for depression. It sounds like for almost a decade, you went through a depressive episode. And that's pretty big. And this can be extremely important for those individuals that do come from normative backgrounds. Because again, because something is normal, we want to say that it's okay, but it isn't always. So maybe you can point out that, you know, it sounds like what happened was your parent was really invalidating about your desire to go into this profession. And it sounds like it's really affected you. And you can talk to them about that. And I mean, Ivy and I do have some personal examples with this, but the reality is, and we kind of discussed this behind the scenes, was we weren't willing to provide these examples because the issues we would be talking about are not our issues. They are somebody else's issues. And that's not our business to be spreading other people's business. So unfortunately, I can't give you specific examples of what that looks like. But sometimes when you do get into a relationship and you start having these discussions, 
you'll identify that what the other person went through was traumatic or they did have a mental illness. And now it's not always good for you to be the one to diagnose it or you to be the one to force the issue. If you do see these things come up, it's usually often important to get that person an outside perspective, to get them to a therapist that can offer them some objective information. It's so hard to be objective about that. You want to be loyal to them and you want to see them protected and you never want to see them hurt. And so you can get carried away. But sometimes what you see is actually the symptoms of a mental illness or it was an experience of trauma and they've not recognized it and helping that person recognize that can help them heal and I think also hand in hand with that is you're also offer, able to offer another person validation so when you start having these these baggage discussions you can start honestly looking at the other person and what they went through and offering them validation for that and being able to say oh my god you were hurt so much and nobody was there for you. And I'm so sorry you had to experience these struggles. And it seems like those words would be empty. But when you go through a trauma background and nobody's there to acknowledge how painful that was, you don't know how empowering it can feel to have somebody just acknowledge that what happened was not okay. What happened did hurt you. And, and that validation is so big because it makes you feel less alone and it makes the other person feel less alone so when you have that matching baggage there's there's a lot of things you can offer to the other person being able to provide that is incredibly beneficial for somebody's healing it's also incredibly beneficial for somebody's healing to be able to not only see that experience and validate that they went through that but also if they are in a space where they are really blaming themselves for something that is not their fault, especially if they've been in a situation where they've been abused by somebody who made them think that everything was their fault and they were a terrible person and nobody else would ever put up with them. Or if they started believing that and they really think that everything is their fault and they're a terrible person and there's no merit to them, not just validating what they've been through, but also validating that, no, it's, it, this is not all your fault. Even if you played a part in it, in a lot of these situations, it's not all your fault. Using that example of somebody who's been in, an, in a situation with somebody who's abusive towards them, yet yeah, you, you may, especially if you tend to be one of those people who's a fighter, you may start to lash back out in some ways, but it's not all on you. That's something that becomes a toxic situation over time. So if you see somebody who's been through something and they are blaming themselves for something that is either not their fault or is not entirely on them, making a point to, to tell them that can help a lot. And like going back to that example that I used much earlier in the episode about how children often will blame themselves for the breakdown of their parents' marriage and for the divorce, people can carry that idea well into adulthood. I carried that idea well into adulthood because as a child, I was told that it was my fault that my parents' marriage was ruined, that things were fine until I was born. I was told that. Not everybody gets told that, but still most kids, a lot of kids at least, will blame themselves for that. Also because divorce has become so normalized. You may have been a child in a, in a home where divorce happened and that's so normal to you 
because you went through it and you know many of your friends went through it or whatever or you may put it on the back burner and downplay it as not being traumatic you may not even realize that that was a trauma you may not even realize that you blamed yourself for it somebody else might be able to see that so if you do see in your partner that they've been through something very real don't just validate the experience, but but also if you see them blaming themselves for something that is not on them, please make a point to to tell them that so that they can have the opportunity to to forgive themselves. Yes, ex exactly. Because our love and our sense of attachment is so defined, whether we want it to be or not, by our childhood experiences and love is also the safe place that we can learn to heal and the safe place that we can learn to grow and so if you are able to have these kind of discussions and you're able to identify your own baggage and your partner is able to work on this as well and you can come together you can both create this safe place to begin healing some of the issues you have and working on some of the backstory that neither of you want and to rewrite the narrative so you can have the love that you do want that both of you want and to create that that relationship and to create a love that's a new definition for both of you and and part of that is the validation and part of that is the acknowledgement and part of that is stepping up and retroactively defending them against the blame they've placed on themselves or the blame that others have placed on to them it's also just helping each other not feel so alone if you do both come from different you know traumatic backgrounds or you both came from normative but invalidating backgrounds and you both are able to recognize that you can both feel not so alone and not so insane in that struggle i mean essentially what you're talking about here is you're destigmatizing mental health within this relationship and you're creating this safe space where it's okay to be whatever you are without judgment and it's just that mutual understanding and that non-judgment of yes you're having this issue and that issue may directly affect you you know when i had the issue about a broken plate and i'm or a, a dirty plate and i'm breaking that plate and i'm having a tantrum that issue is affecting my partner but my partner then because we've had this discussion and they know where i'm coming from they have that choice then to invalidate me and say geez it's just a plate or they have that opportunity to give me the space I need to call them on my own and then come back in and talk with me about this. And, and that's really what you're creating with this is an understanding so that you can develop these safe spaces. And then also so you cannot feel judged by or inferior to your partner. Because a lot of us out there that come from traumatic backgrounds and we are unstable or we have mental health struggles, how many of you out there have gotten in that relationship where somebody is going to save you? And what that means is that you need to be saved. If somebody out there is trying to save you, that's the mentality is you need to be saved because you are broken. You are dysfunctional. You are defective. You are not right. And they're trying to help make you right. And that can be very, very damaging narrative. And that's something for both partners to look into because a lot of times people that feel broken will be attracted to partners that want to save them. And so this is really important that both of you look into that and be like, wait, Am I creating this narrative where I'm broken and you're a savior? And if so, how do we work together to alter that? So neither of us is the wrong one or the ill one or the broken one. Yeah, that's definitely been one of the most healing thing in, in my current relationship for both me and my partner is that neither of us, I mean, we both, we both have our issues. Everybody has their issues. Everybody has their baggage. Uh, 
but it's not something that gets brought up as a weapon when things go awry, when we have arguments. It's not something that we use against each other, the things that we're struggling with. That's That never enters the narrative because there is that understanding and there is that sense that we are equals and that we are both deserving of love and we are both deserving of respect and we chose each other for a reason. And we chose each other not just on the basis of all of the things that we really liked about each other, but also because we could see the woundedness in each other and still still view each other as whole people. Neither of us is in need of fixing and we don't go about our relationship treating each other as though the other person is in need of being fixed or repaired in some way. We are both healing over time and it's been a beautiful thing for both of us. And the, um, the amount of loyalty we have to each other, the, the sheer respect for, that we have for each other, the immense trust that has been built, like that's, that's something that's, that is beautiful and something that I never believed that I would have because I always believed myself to be broken. And I always thought that I was going to end up with somebody who would just have to put up with me if they chose to love me, it was because they would love me in spite of the things that all the various things that were wrong with me. But it's it doesn't have to be like that. You can find a relationship where both you and your partner recognize that there is woundedness and that everybody comes with their own baggage, regardless of what their background is, whether it's incredibly traumatic or whether it's seemingly normal. Regardless of that, you can find a relationship where both of you see each other fully and you accept each other fully and you love each other fully and you recognize that yes there's there are areas where we both need to heal and there are areas where we both need to grow but it's not one of us fixing the other person it's us trying to grow together and find ways to heal through this love and to heal as individual people and to encourage each other to do that kind of healing as well not forcing it not treating your partner as damaged goods or any of those things. It's not forcing somebody to get treatment or forcing some sort of fix on a person because you view them as defective. You can find somebody who will love you because they do see you and they see all of you and they love that complexity about you and even the things that drive them crazy because there will always be things in every relationship where you drive your partner crazy or they drive you crazy. Even those things can be worked through as though, as though it's just any other type of compromise. It's not because either person is broken. It's just because this is this is something that needs to be worked on in the relationship. You can treat it in that way. That's the kind of normal that that's healthy. And that's what we should be normalizing in relationships, I think. I think that is what we should be normalizing relationships for sure. And with with all this though, we've talked about, you know, what are the how to explore your, your past relationships and your past love and the history and all of the baggage you've gotten and to encourage your partner to explore the same so that you can come together and if you need to, to change these relational narratives. And, and before we move on to the next section where we talk about, you know, how do you work with your partner? I want to step in here and here and go, you know, well, what if you're willing to do the work, but your partner isn't? Okay. Because I'm sure a lot of you are going to be out there where your partners and you are at different sets of growth in different areas and you have different priorities and one of you may be willing to do the work and the other it's just not and so what do you do in this case well 
in my opinion, you should always be doing the work because if you don't do the work to, to make yourself better, you're always going to be stuck where you're at. And I don't think any of us can say that we're 100% happy where we are. So what you really need to decide at that point is, are you okay with the relationship as it is enough to continue without either of them, without the other person doing the work? And if not, are you okay with continuing being in a relationship where you're going to have to put in work that the other person's not willing to? And that's really a decision you're going to have to make on your own is how healthy is this relationship without the work? And how are you, how much are you okay with not working on relational issues at this point in your life? Because really a lot of relational issues do have to be explored within the confines of a relationship. You know, if you wanted to change that relational narrative, you change it within the relationship. There's only so much you can do of your own accord to fix or manage or change or alter a relationship. It's a, it's a two-way street. Or if you have multiple people in the relationship, it's a three or four or five-way street, however that is. So it's really on you to decide, you know, if you're willing to do the work and they're not, how important is this relationship with you and how much are you willing to compromise on your growth in order to stay there? So having said that, I want to move on to, so how do you begin having these conversations and how do you work with your partner on this baggage? And what are some... I guess, tricks of the trade. Um, and what are some things maybe that Ivy and I have done that we can give you examples of to, you know, perform this kind of work and to start examining the matching baggage and the complementary baggage. And, and for me, I'm going to throw it out there again. I feel like this is the golden rule. There are two rules, I guess, in my world about relationships. One is try your best not to hurt the other person. So no abuse, no harm, no pain, no violence. And then the second one is bloody fucking talk to each other. Just communicate. That That's where everything starts. You have to communicate. You have to talk. I, and I'll throw it to you, Ivy, because I, I feel like that's just it for me. Just bloody talk to each other. Unfortunately, if you're somebody who doesn't like communicating in a partnership to try to make things work, you're going to have a really hard time because that is that that is such a huge part of any sort of healthy, functional, loving relationship is communication. And we don't always know where to start with communication. And Autumn and I have been working at this for such a long time now, it's, it's almost second nature to us, but everybody has to start somewhere. And maybe you have no idea how to communicate and you especially have no idea how to communicate in a healthy way with your partner because a lot of us don't get taught those things. Even, even people who grow up in, in seemingly normal functional families, don't necessarily get taught how to communicate, uh, especially communicating with a partner. They kind of just try to piece it together from watching their parents. But if your parents don't have great communication skills or if they actively don't communicate a lot of things in front of the kids, like if you never see your parents fight, if you never see your parents deal with a conflict with, the, with each other, you're not going to learn anything about communication from that scenario. So there's, thankfully, other resources that you can go to to learn about communication. There's tons of, of resources out there and not just about communication, but just relationship skills in general. And this probably sounds, you know, like, duh, of course, but couples counseling and not necessarily couples counseling with a therapist because not everybody's open to that, but there are other, there are other options available to you. If you do tend to be religious, maybe you can seek out, 
you know, your, your pastor or, you know, something along those lines, but somebody who's trained to work with couples specifically, you know, maybe a mediator might be another good, another good resource to go to. I mean, Autumn probably has more resources that she can suggest for couples counseling. Not really. I, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, I, again, a trained therapist that is trained for couples counseling, not every therapist is trained or even good at couples counseling. So if you want to go out there, look for somebody that works specifically with couples or specifically with families. And again, like Ivy said, if you come from a religious background, there's a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, a lot of priests, they actually go through some educational to deal with this. And if they haven't gone through the educational background, they do have the experiential background of dealing with couples and providing counseling. Mediators again. And I think also individual counseling as well. Seeing each other as a couple is great, but I think also having individual counseling can sometimes help. This can give you the narrative of how do I start talking? Because even if this counselor isn't about couples, they are about the individual and they can start providing you some coping skills and some communication skills because that's kind of the basis of counseling at all is that coping and that functioning and that communicating. And so they can provide you some of these skills and they can provide you some concrete examples of how to move forward with that. And I think also, like, if you want to talk self-help, there's a lot of self-help books out there. You got to be careful when it comes to relationships because there's a lot of bullshit self-help out there. Ivy had a specific author. If you could speak to him a little bit, Ivy, or her, I guess. I didn't ask you the gender of the author. Well, you were you were right the the first time. It is a it is a male. I have really really loved the books uh, by Terrence Real. He specializes in relationship counseling. Uh, and he, his perspective is very unique. It is a little bit unorthodox, but not in a way that, it, that at least that, that I think is dangerous in any way, shape or form. And I have, I have read many of his books and I've listened to him on other podcasts and on YouTube channels. And I've listened to him speak. I've never gone to see him speak, but I have listened to him quite a bit. He has very interesting perspectives on navigating really difficult things in relationships and how to have very difficult conversations. And it's very real and it's very relatable. And one of the things that I, that I love most about his books is it's not just a lot of self-help books that I've read and I've read a ton, uh, a lot of them, especially about relationships, maybe they'll use just just examples of patients that they've had or whatever. And that can be helpful because it does give some real world examples there. And he does, Terrence Real does do some of that, but he also pulls a lot from his own experiences because part of the reason that, that he got into the, the mental health field is because he himself grew up in a very dysfunctional family and he did not learn what healthy relationships were on on any level and he also has de dealt a lot with generational trauma and generational healing and what all goes into that and how that affects your relationships and how you communicate and how you deal with stress as an individual and how that can affect you your partner as well so i really love his work because he pulls from his own experiences he pulls from cases that he's actually worked on and it's it's a very unique view of communication and relationships, especially between men and women, but it, it's not exclusive to heterosexual relationships. It, he talks a lot to 
you know, power dynamics in relationships and why we don't communicate and what the obstacles are and how you can kind of overcome those things. And he even gives some advice on, on how to try to work with a partner who's not really trying to work with you and kind of where you, you know, how to, how to kind of figure out where you draw the line where it's this relationship has no hope and how you proceed from that point. If you get to a point where there's just, this relationship is going nowhere. So I would really, really suggest any of the, the books by Terrence Real. My two favorites personally, and we'll also have them act, have them accessible to you on the, our resources page for this episode on our website, differentfunctional.com. But I believe that one of the first one is how do I get through to you or how can I get through to you? And the other one is called, I don't want to talk about it, overcoming the legacy of male depression. And that one doesn't necessarily sound like it's a relationship book, but it does go into a lot of, of relationship themed things and how depression in men is underdiagnosed or depression in people that have more of those characteristically masculine attributes is underdiagnosed for a variety of reasons like social stigma and the idea of gender roles overall and just all of those things for for why that can be underdiagnosed and not dealt with properly and how that affects these men's their, their lives and their relationships with their partners and with their children and all those sorts of things so it does go in, into a lot of detail about communication and about relationships. So yeah, those are the two books that I would very much suggest that I have read multiple times and have been extremely beneficial for me in every relationship that I've been in since that point because it, it, gave, it gave me a completely different perspective about how to communicate with my partner. And it gave me a different perspective on myself and how... I tend to operate in relationships that may be destructive in some ways as well. That's awesome. And like she said, we will be sharing those on our resources page as well, if you'd like to dive into those a little deeper. And then I think also, because we talk with that, it's a lot of like skills and awareness. And I think one of the other important parts when we're talking about relationships and working on our matching baggage and working on our complementary baggage and getting an understanding is having an outside connection and an outside perspective. And this could be a therapist, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, it could be your mom. It's just another human out there that you can go to and you can express what's going on and get some feedback. But it's really important though with this that you find somebody that can be objective. Because again, our friends, if they're really our friends, they want to be loyal to us and they want to defend us. And so, you know, we may go to the friend and need to vent how so and so never does the dishes and they then jump to the conclusion that we're being abused and it's not okay and it's not right and they want to you know set up a march and a rally in our honor to defend us so it's not really what we're looking for you're looking for a friend or a pastor or whoever it is that can give you some perspective outside where you can go to them and say you know i really need to vent can i just yell about this person for a minute or you can say you know i have this situation and, and i can't tell if this is okay or not if it's healthy if it's toxic can you give me some feedback and if it's really complicated, somebody trained, such as a therapist, may be a good place to start. But if it's just an everyday thing, a good friend, you know, or your mom, if they've got a decent relationship or you know somebody else that has a decent relationship, they can give you some feedback and just say, hey, 
you know, this is what I'm seeing. I know Ivy and I have used each other a lot over the years, um, good relationships and bad relationships. We've, you know, gone to each other and been like, this is what's going on. And the other person's been able to say, wow, that's fucked up. Are you sure you want to keep in that relationship? Or we've been able to say, yeah, I think that's pretty normal. You know, I've heard my other friends or I've heard my clients complain about that. I think it's pretty typical. And we're able to give that perspective so that we don't get lost in our own little internal loop and we don't get lost in that forest of the relationship. One last thing that's really important, and I'm going to let Ivy speak to this mostly, is maintaining a sense of individuality. Uh, as far as that last note, being able to maintain a sense of individuality. This one is super important to me because it, because I am such an independent person. Not everybody is. Like I said, there are some people that they want to spend every single second of the day with their partner and their partner wants to spend every single second of the day with them. I don't think those couples are very common. Maybe I'm wrong. I have not seen a whole lot of those. Most people when they do kind of get into, or at least that I've ex that I've seen in my own life, most people that do fall into doing that, at some point it stops working. Maybe it's great in the beginning while they're still feeling that first flush of love and they just want to be together all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. I think most people go through that in the beginning of their relationship. But at a certain point for a lot of people that it, it stops working and it stops being a purely good thing because they start to lose themselves entirely in their relationship and they forget who they are as an individual. And I think it's important to always be able to maintain the sense that you are also your own person because being in a relationship does not complete you. You do not have this void in you waiting to just be filled by another person. And there may be times in your life where you have to be independent, you have to be self-sufficient. What if something happens to your partner and your entire identity has been based on your partner and now they're gone? It's a huge identity crisis that you're going to go through. Or what if something happens and the relationship splits up? Again, huge identity crisis that you're going to have to go through. Or if you are, if your identity is so wrapped up in just your partner and let's say your partner joins the military and they have to be gone for a few months at a time. And you now have forgotten how to function because you're so used to this person being around. There is merit and value in still maintaining your own sense of self outside of the context of your relationship. There's a lot to be said for that in terms of your own confidence, your, your self-sufficiency, your ability to be independent, your ability to have some sense of who you are outside of your relationship as well as inside of your relationship. It's not that there's two different versions of you. It's that you are a multifaceted person. And I think the damage that can be done by being solely wrapped up in your partner and never spending any time apart and never having, you know, just friends of your own and never having interests of your own, you completely lose yourself in that process. And that's, that's not healthy. It's, it's really not like you are still your own person. It is good to be multifaceted. Don't become one dimensional 
because you're in a relationship with this person and now this person is your identity. Be your own person too. Have your own friends that you can use as objective sounding boards. All of those things are, are really important for people to have as individuals because no matter how much we love our partner, no matter how close we are to our partner, they may be our very best friend in the whole white world. And that is wonderful if that is the case but you are still your own person and they are still their own person. And it's a whole lot of pressure to put on each other to be each other's identity. You know, and I, and I will just chime in on that too, because um, my partner and I, we spend, I would say 95 to 99% of our free time in each other's company or doing things together. And you would think that we are very codependent and, and I guess in some ways we are, but, we are also very much our own individual selves. Neither of us have a lot of friends outside of the house. Neither of us like going out very much. We're very much homebodies and we live in an open floor plan. So that means whenever one of us is not working, we are near the other person. But even with that, we don't force each other to constantly do the same thing. You know, sometimes I'm just sitting reading on the couch and he's playing his switch you know, it's that just small thing of allowing the other person to pursue their own activities and to be their own self and to feel their own emotions and giving them that space and freedom to do it. And individuality is, is you know, even coming from a person that spends 99% of her time with her mate, I still say that individuality is definitely important, however you can provide that. And so again, overall, just to kind of recap today, it's really important when you're looking at relationships to identify your baggage. What is your history? What is your love narrative? Where did it come from? What are you repeating in your own relationships now? Identifying all of that baggage so that you can then look at the relationship and say, okay, what is complementary and what is matching here? You know, where are we similar? Where are we different? And then again, diving into is this something that is helping us grow or is this something that is creating a toxic environment so that you can make conscious choices about what your love narrative is and who you want to be. So that is our, our episode this week on relationships, the importance of matching baggage. Again, this is part two. Part one was released on Valentine's Day, the myths of relationships. And I hope you enjoyed listening this week and Ivy will give you all of our special social media information since I can never remember any of it. You can find us on Facebook as different functional. You can find us on Instagram as different underscore functional. And you can find us on Twitter as diff, D-I-F-F underscore functional. You can also find us on our website, www.differentfunctional.com. And definitely check out the website this time because not only will we have the resources from this episode, but there will also be the blog that Autumn mentioned at the beginning of the episode that she's going to write that kind of goes into more detail about the, the science of attraction and all that kind of stuff. And don't forget to follow us, like, subscribe, leave us a comment, leave us a review, please leave a nice one. And if you are interested in donating to the, the work that we're doing here and improving the quality of the podcast, we do have a Patreon. So you can check us out there as well. And we have all sorts of awesome perks lined up for our patrons. And I think that is all of our pluggables. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, remember, different does not mean defective. My, my.